All right, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead, take them out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you recall, we've been going verse by verse through the entire gospel of Luke for the last, most since fall began. And beginning last week, we kind of rewound the tape a little bit and went back to the first chapter of Luke. We actually skipped Luke 1 and 2 when we began our journey of the Gospel of Luke. And the reason is is that Luke 1 and 2 are perfect for Advent. It deals with the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you a little bit about Luke. Luke was a historian. He begins Luke chapter 1 by saying, uh, I'm writing the account of the life of Jesus, and I went and I did the eyewitness testimonies to all who spoke with him, with his disciples. He went and he was a historian. In fact, he was a physician of his day. The Apostle Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. He was a very well-educated man who went and did eyewitness interviews with those who knew the disciples and who knew Jesus and who were around to witness the miracles. And then he wrote it down to have an orderly account So that we, that's you and me, and every other person on this planet since the birth of Christ could have confidence in the actual events of what took place. That's remarkable. So just to bring us back into that space, in modern day, when you're in a court of law, when you have someone who interviewed the eyewitnesses, who was at the place to investigate what took place, that goes a long ways. And that's exactly what we have with the Gospel of Luke. Now, Last week, we spoke about prayer. We looked at Zechariah's prayer. If you recall, John the Baptist's dad had this wonderful prophetic prayer, and we talked about what it means to pray the promises of God the way that Zechariah did, and and how we could take Advent as a season to reorient our lives. Today, we come across another really beautiful prayer in the birth narrative of Christ, and it comes from his mother, from Mary. You know, if you want to love somebody, you have to know them. Let me say that again. Seems so basic, but just let that sink in for a second. If you want to love somebody, you have to truly know them. I think of my my marriage, my wife. Over the last, we're we're coming up on 13 years in about a week. And yeah, not not bad. We we got got a lot in this room of a lot further than us. Uh, But the, the more, the longer I've been married to my wife, the more things I learn about her. We learn new things about each other, likes, dislikes, ways we behave, ways we don't. Over time, not only do you learn new things about the person you're in a relationship with, but learning those new attributes, learning those new characteristics helps you learn how to love that person. Do you see that? The more you know about a person, the more you can love them according to who they are. You can love them and serve them in ways that are unique to them. In order to love somebody, you have to know them. In the same way that I got to know my wife if I want to love her. If we want to be in an intimate relationship with God, we have to know him. We can't just be spiritual people who have a sense that there is a God out there somewhere. Everyone on the planet has a sense that there is a God out there somewhere. That's not enough. You can't be in relationship with the unknown God, as they called him in the, in the, in the book of Acts in the Bible. When Paul was in Athens and he was going around, he said, I see that you have a, a statue to the unknown God. Even back then, they knew there was some divinity out there. But just having an unknown God does not mean you're in, in relationship with that God, does not mean you love that God. If we're going to know God, If we're going to love God, we've got to know his attributes. Many people today know what I would call a caricature of God, even within the world of Christianity. I had a a wonderful uh, encounter with a young man on the streets this week sharing the gospel, 
And uh, it started off pretty hostile. He was not happy. And uh, it lasted about a half an hour. By the end of it, we were pretty chummy with each other. <clears throat> and he had all kinds of misconceptions about God. He thought he was a Christian because his mom had taken him to church since he was a kid, but he didn't know anything about the God of the Bible. And at every turn, I got to correct him, bring him back to the word of God, and say, actually, you're, you think something about God that's not true. And what needed to happen in that young man's life, and I don't know if it took place or not, God's doing a work in his life, he made us encounter each other, but what needed to happen was a moment where he realized, I'm not a Christian. I thought I was. And the way I know I'm not is I never actually knew God as he's told me he is. And therefore, I've never truly loved God. Today is the second week of Advent, and uh, we come across the birth narrative of Christ as told through the story of his mother. Now, I'm going to focus today on this beautiful prayer. In fact, it's a pretty ancient prayer. It's called the Magnificat. Uh, for those of you that come from a Catholic background, uh, th this is a, a pretty highly esteemed prayer because they, they over-esteem Mary in the Catholic Church, but they have a very high reverence for Mary, and so this prayer goes a long ways and is oftentimes repeated within the Catholic context. But it's a beautiful prayer about Mary. At this point in the story, Mary is a young woman. She's in her teenage years. She's betrothed to Joseph, which means she was engaged. But in those days, betrothal meant something much more than our engagement. You didn't end, in order to end a betrothal, you had to get divorced, in other words. It was a pretty significant step. Um, but they weren't intimate with each other in terms of, uh, you know, mar marital relations. And, uh, but she was found to be pregnant with a child. And an angel appeared to her and told her that you will bear a child and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's who Jesus is. It's the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh with us. And she was overwhelmed by this and she, she made a trip. And jo at first, Joseph was gonna divorce her quietly. He was gonna deal with this quietly. Now keep in mind for Mary, this was a dangerous situation. In Jewish culture of that day, sex outside of marriage could have gotten you killed. You could have been stoned to death for that kind of behavior. Mary was in a small town. Those of you who are from small towns know what that might be like to have the gossip mill going around if you're a young woman who's found pregnant outside of marriage. And here she is a little scared, but she's got this angel. She's got a husband who an angel appears to as well, confirms the story, so he's not confused. And she visits her family members who happen to be the parents of John the Baptist, who we studied last week. And while she's visiting the parents of John the Baptist, who Elizabeth, the, 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 the relative she's visiting, is also pregnant with John the Baptist, a few months ahead of her at this point. And as Mary comes and visits her, we're told that John leapt in Elizabeth's womb. Isn't that amazing? The, the baby leapt in the womb. Talk about life in the womb, right? Talk about evidence that a child in the womb is a full human life worthy of dignity and life. John leapt with the emotion of joy in the womb of his mother. Shortly after that, Mary prays this very powerful prayer about all the good things that God has done in her life. Let me read it to you. Luke chapter one, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, Luke chapter one, 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here's what I wanna do. I've preached a couple sermons over the years on that exact text, and uh, I'm gonna come at it from a different angle today. I wanna talk about prayer. I wanna talk about our own prayer lives. And Mary does something remarkable in this prayer of hers. She's praying the attributes of God. And, and you might not be able to see it when you, at first glance. You gotta, you gotta see it through the right lens. She's praying the attributes of God. What are the attributes of God? It's the qualities and the characteristics of God that he's revealed to us through the, the, the pages of scripture. And there's many of them. And actually, there's so many of them, I couldn't fit. I had a list of nine attributes, I think are very clear in this. I've got time today to preach through five of them. And it's overwhelming. Keep in mind, Mary's just a young teenager, but she's got such a knowledge of God, such a profound understanding of who he is, how he relates to people, how he's related to her, that what's coming out of her in, his, in her relationship with God through prayer is all the qualities of God in, my, in her prayer. So let's go through five attributes of God and, and how your own prayer life this Advent might be impacted if you decided, I'm gonna start relating to God based on his characteristics. First characteristics we see is God's independence. Interesting word. Another word that's historically used for this is his aseity. That's a big technical term that just means independence. God is independent. Now, where do I get this from? This is actually reading between the lines a little bit, but I'm gonna get it from verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Three words used to describe God in one verse. Lord God, Savior. Now, the word God, as Mary's using it, has a very specific context. Mary's not just throwing that word out. She's a, a young Hebrew girl in first century Israel that's living by the book. What I mean by that is her Bible was our Old Testament. Everything in the New Testament was written after the birth of Christ to record the events in the ministry of Christ. But Mary had the Old Testament as her Bible, and it's part of our Bible as well. It's the same God. He's unchanged. And she had an understanding of who God was that was very different from all the nations around her. All the nations around her had many different gods. They had pagan gods and small, lowercase g gods that they served, that they believed were spiritual beings. And those gods were very dependent beings. They were dependent on each other. They, they oftentimes would get in little tiffs with each other and fights with each other, and they'd behave in certain ways in terms of the mythology of the pagan nations around them. This was the normal understanding of what God would be like. He was kind of like us in terms of the pagan nations around them. God's kind of like us. The gods are kind of like us, but just like Marvel superhero versions of us that are invisible. That's basically what the pagan version of God was. But Mary prays to the true and the living God who is independent. Now let this shape you for a little bit. God, in no way, shape, or form, is dependent on anything outside of himself to exist, sustain, and be content in himself. He is not dependent on time, space, or matter for existence. In fact, he created time, space, and matter. This is actually a really fascinating conversation in philosophical terms. Those philosophers who like to wrestle with, does God exist? You go back to people like Aristotle, but even in our modern day philosophers, when they look at the world 
and they see that time, space, and matter exists, they scratch their head and they say, how can it exist? Why does it exist? And why is there order and beauty to this world that we live in? And the answer is, is that we now know scientifically what the Bible has always said, that time had a beginning. It wasn't always the way it was. Space didn't always exist. There was a, there was a moment when it came into being. And that has caused many wonderful minds to scratch their heads in, fut- in futility to say, then there must be a God. And in fact, the Bible has been here from the very beginning saying, yes, and if there must be a God, that God must exist outside of his creation. If he made time, space, and matter, then God must live independent of all of that. He's not bound by us. He's not limited by us. Let me go further. He doesn't need us. Swallow that pill for a second. God is not bending to our whims. One of the most common conversations I have with people who don't have a proper understanding of God is that they think that he's this small, weak figure who kind of is somehow kind of juggling and things, but he's independent. He's not bound by our will over him. He's not bound by time, space, and matter. Paul, the apostle Paul, gets at this in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 25. He's at the Areopagus. He's debating with the philosophers in Athens at the, day, at the time. And he says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need us to be fulfilled. He doesn't need us to get things done in this world, though he invites us in miraculously. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't need us to win one soul to faith in Christ. He's competent all by himself. But by his love, kindness, mercy, and for the joy of his people, he invites us in to participate in what he's doing. Let that sink in. God is independent. Again, the popular image of God in our media is of God kind of fawning over his creatures, trying to win their approval. Reset. God is independent. I love how A.W. Tozer says this. He says, need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relation to everything he's made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they bring to him, who is, they bring to him who is complete in himself. Now, the, the correction this should be being, that this should be made in your own heart right now is I, in this sermon, I want to elevate God to his proper place. And Advent is the time to do this. Some of us, we have, an, we have a caricature of God like that young man I described. To one degree or another, maybe it's not as extreme as that young man's was, but in some ways, over time, we, we, we make God small. And sometimes we need to look at a text like this and make God big and realize we're, God is not to be trifled with. He's independent. How do we respond to this? Isaiah 66, verses one to two, ties in the, the characteristic of independence. God is assaic, his aseity, and then it tells us how we should respond. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is, the, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble 
and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now in that passage, God's saying, look, I own everything. You're not gonna make me something that I need. You're not gonna gonna be something that I need. I own it all. Here's the person I delight in. Here's the person that comes into relationship with God. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So let me pause for a second. Is that you today? Humble, contrite in spirit, and trembling at God's word. Now how should this impact our prayer life? Well, if this is true of God, and if that's what he demands of us, if that's what he requires of us to be in relationship with him, one of the things that God's independence should form in our own prayer life is a sense of our need of him. He has no need of us, but we are not God. We have every need of him. We have need of him for breath right now. I told someone this week a story. I've never shared it before, except for maybe a couple people. About two years ago, I was praying. I was alone in my room, having a pretty fervent time of prayer with the Lord. And I prayed this prayer. I had my head down like this. And I prayed this prayer. I said, God, this ministry is yours. I said, you could take my voice away from me right now. And in that moment, I choked. I I wasn't eating anything. I was, that's never happened to me in my life before, ever. I've never just been sitting there and choked. Here I am, you could take my breath, you could take my voice to, (coughs) took me about 30 seconds to regain my composure. I go back to that a lot. This is no game, the preaching of God's word. I better be faithful to the text. God has no need of him. We have absolute need of him. Not just me as a preacher. For you to live and have breath and life and a heart that beats and lungs that fill with air and and a body that works and, and to have relationships and to not fall into how depraved we could go if God were to remove his mercy from us. Because I know my mind, I know my heart, I know the effects of sin. And if God were to remove his grace from our lives, his mercy from our lives, the wickedness we would find ourselves in the brokenness that would trail along with us. We have absolute need of him. How do you approach God? With a humble and contrite heart, expressing incredible need of him. Number two, it should cause you to say, what a God. (laughs) He is amazing. That's the tone of Mary's prayer, isn't it? From start to finish, there's this young teenage woman who if you could just summarize her prayer, it's this. What a God. Does that define your relationship with God? Because that's the, at its most simplest, most basic level, that's a Christian. Like, boil it down. We're going to get to some more details of what a Christian has to believe in just a moment. But base level, here's a Christian. Someone who's seen God in his glory. Who's looked at Jesus and seen what he's done from the cross and has said, Whoa! I want all of that all my life. Does that define your relationship with God? Look, if not, at some point in your life, you're going to have to reorient yourself because you're missing out on what you were made for. You're living a life without that. You're living a very shallow life. Your, your, Your ceiling is very low. 
It's like an infant's ceiling. But you learn that, oh, what God can do in your life. First characteristic, God's independence. Very related to that, the second characteristic, God's holiness, God's holiness. Look at the verse 40, we're gonna go straight through this, verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Names mean something in the Bible. So all through the scriptures, you see a handful of people where their names really mean something. So Jacob in the Old Testament, his name is changed to Israel. Why? Well, because Israel, the term Israel means wrestles with God. And Jacob wrestled with God. You remember the story in the Old Testament? He wrestled literally what I believe to be Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, a physical man. Jacob wrestled with him and, and, and Jesus knocked his hip out of, out of place. That's an incredible story. We studied that over the summer. Right? His name was changed to Israel. It defined who he was. He wrestled with God. Boaz in the story of Ruth. The word boaz in Hebrew means strength. Boaz, that man, he's a strong man. He provides for Ruth. He defends Ruth. He does it God's way. Strong man. He's Boaz. His name means strength. Who's God? Holy is his name. What does holiness mean? We had a whole sermon on this recently, but let me give us just a a quick version of this. Holiness means two different things at the same time, and they're kind of wrapped around each other like a vine. On the one hand, holiness refers to his set-apartedness. It's almost like his independence. He's totally set apart, but connected to that is this idea that in no way, shape, or form is he any way related to unrighteousness. He's perfect in morality. He's perfect in righteousness. Why? Not because he submits to a higher power as if morality is up here and then God, because he's good, submits to some higher law. Outside of God, there's no such thing as law. God doesn't submit to some other law. The law flows from who he is. He's independent, right? Morality is morality because it comes out of the nature of God. Good is good because God is good. And what we know as good from the word of God flows out of who God's character is. He's holy. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? The prophet gets caught up into the throne room of God. And around the the throne room of God, an actual physical scene. This is reality. This is not fable or mythology. Isaiah is caught up into the throne room of God. There's cherubim and seraphim, which are classes of really scary, mighty angels who are surrounding the throne room of God. And what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When a word is repeated in scripture, it's like you're putting a stamp on it. You recall that I told you about the the silver box in scripture and the way the silver box is defined, it was silver, silver. It It was pure silver. Only one time in scripture is it repeated three times, a word repeated three times, and it's by the angels declaring who God is. He's holy, holy, holy. His moral character is perfect. Now, how ought this to impact our relationship with God? Where is God's holiness most perfectly seen? It's at the cross. It's where Jesus went underneath the wrath of God on our behalf. Why? God is so holy that not the slightest shade of sin is permitted in his presence. He's not holy. He's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. 
Our thoughts on God are too small. I'm trying to get us to see God for who he is, and you know that's who he is. You know it. We deceive ourselves, we try to tell ourselves that's not who he is, we try to keep ourselves busy with everything, with career, with family, with everything we gotta do in life, but when we're tired, and when we're weak, and we start thinking about God, we know this is who he is. He's holy, holy, holy. And because he's holy, 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 not one grain of sin or corruption or pollution of heart is permitted in his presence. And so what did Isaiah cry when he found himself in his presence? Woe is me. I'm undone. Remember it? I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm before holy, holy, holy. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. And to just be in your presence means that I no longer exist. My seams are coming apart before the holiness of God. At the cross, God dealt with our unholiness. And he made a way for that which is unholy, you and me, with corrupt minds, corrupt hearts, wicked in relationship, wicked in affection, wicked in our thoughts, wicked in our thoughts of God. God, looking down, knowing that the penalty for that is eternal separation from him because he's holy, 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 did something about it. And he poured his justice, not on us, but on Christ. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that you believe that God is holy, and that unholiness cannot be in his presence. And it means that you've received the free gift of grace, trusting that one man went underneath God's wrath for your uncleanness and your unholiness, and you've received it, and you believe it. Now, what ought this ought to do to you if you get this attribute? Mary got it. Holy is your name. That's why she said, my spirit rejoices in God my savior. She knew she needed a savior. Well, I should do a couple things. Number one, it should give you a sense of your own corruption. If you know God's holiness, then when you come in prayer, your, your sinfulness and all of its putrid detail is laid bare before God and it's like oil and water. They don't mix. What, the water does not mix with the oil. You don't just walk into heaven. You don't just walk in a relationship with God. He's holy, holy, holy. You should have an overwhelming sense of your own corruption. And then what it should do if you're a Christian who's truly received Jesus, God says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. There should be a, an overwhelming change in your posture to God that you want holiness in your life. You see your own corruption, you run to the cross and you say, thank you, thank you for the cross. Otherwise, I'm underneath the wrath of God. And that's called hell, and it's for all eternity, and it's terrible. And I don't want one person over there to experience it. Thank you, Jesus, that you experienced hell on my behalf. Now, as a result of that, I want to live an obedient life. I want holiness in my life. And the promise is that God then begins to form that holiness in you. It's called being born again. You put your faith in Jesus, it's not just something you did back there. It starts a journey of walking and becoming obedient and learning righteousness and turning from those foolish ways that led to death and then trusting in Christ, which gives you life. How is your prayer life being impacted this Advent? By the holiness of God. 
Are you desiring holiness? Are you, are you asking God to search you? That's the prayer David said. Search me and know me, O God. That's a terrible, terrifying prayer to pray. Because when he starts to do it and you start to look inside, then you really start to see why the cross was necessary. Jesus wasn't just playing games on the cross. Number three, God's immutability. I'm not gonna get to all five today. God's immutability. Luke chapter one, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What does immutability mean? Immutability, the word mute. We think of the word mutate, to change. Immutability means he doesn't change. He's unchanging. This is one of the biggest things I had to talk with that young man that I told you I met with this week. He, he kept trying to say, look, God's changed. That's how he used to be. But man, everyone does. Everyone behaves this way now, so God's, God's gotta be fine with it. The law supports this, so God's gotta be fine with it. <laughs> I kept going back. God's unchanging. He, he, he does not change when culture changes. He does not change when the government passes a new law that justifies some immorality. He is fixed. And that's good news that he's fixed. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It will always be the same. He'll always be consistent. Malachi chapter three, verse six, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Isn't that interesting? Because I don't change, you're not consumed. In other words, because I'm the God of mercy and love and my covenant will always be the exact same as it was yesterday, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will always hold on to you no matter what you do. If you're in Christ, you will not be consumed. See, he's unchanging. We live in a world that's always changing. Everything changes. Everything does. This church is case study of that, right? Every three years, a large portion of our body living this close to, down, to downtown South Loop moves out of the city of Chicago. Because when you live this close to a city, a lot of, for a lot of folks, it's short term. And I've been pastoring here for nearly 10 years. Man, oh man. Some of you have been around. I think, I think there's one couple. Where are the Hennens? You've been here as long as I have. Anyone else? Yeah, Allie? Oh, John Ryman back there? We got, the, yes, we had the Westlows. We got a few. How many have we seen go, Westlow family? And we learn to celebrate it because it's beautiful. Life changes. I look at my little girl down here. I was looking at a picture of her last night when she was, I got one of those 10 years ago pictures on Facebook and she was just a little nugget. You, you can't hold on to time. Everything changes. God doesn't change. He's fixed. The problem with change is it's, it's out of your control. It, life, we live in a fallen world. Everything changes. Jobs change. Uh, things change. People change. I change. My likes change. My habits change. It's all coming at you a thousand different ways. And sometimes a hurricane's coming around. What do you hold on to? What's fixed? What can I rely on that I know? Good. Solid ground. Okay, hurricane, great, but I can stand here and I know this isn't gonna change. We need that in life. Who doesn't know in this room that life's like a hurricane? It comes at you, it blows you around and you don't have solid ground you're standing on, you're just being blown around like a balloon in a hurricane. Good luck. 
Jesus is solid ground. He's unchanging. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, what doesn't change? His wisdom doesn't change. The same wisdom that led Solomon is the same wisdom that will lead you. Same exact thing. You don't need something new. You don't need your, the next TED Talk. You need the wisdom of God to navigate life. Half the TED Talks will lead you to hell very quickly. You need the wisdom of God to know, how do I determine what I should do? What do I do with my career? Where do I turn? Proverbs, probably a good place. Let's start there. Let's see what God has to say on this issue. God's wisdom doesn't change. God's law doesn't change. His, his determination of what is right and wrong and how we ought to live and, and what we ought to do and how we ought to care for one another, it doesn't change. It doesn't matter what the majority of people say or what the Supreme Court says or what anybody says. His word is fixed and we can rely on it. Praise God. His love doesn't change. When a person repents of sin, truly trusts in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we're told that God's love is poured into their heart in a life-changing way, and it cannot be taken from them. It's unchanging. You know how remarkable that is? Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. I am sure of this, that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's fixed. I'll tell you what, in a world where, where everything changes, to know that in Christ, God sees you intimately in all your weakness, but then says, I covenant with you by the strength of God Almighty that I'm gonna love you not only to the end, but through the end and into the next part of your, your life. I need that. Do you not need that? How should this impact your prayer life? Well, it should give you an assurance of faith. That's a good old-fashioned theological word. Christians should have an assurance of faith. Why? Because the love of God in your life is not dependent on your strength or weakness on any given day. It's not dependent on how many doubts and skepticisms you accumulate over the course of a week or over the course of a month or over the course of six months. If your faith has been placed in Christ and you have faith the size of a mustard seed that Jesus went to the cross for you and he's implanted the new birth in your soul, you can have an assurance of faith. Heaven is your inheritance. God's waiting for you and he's doing something good in you even when you can't see the good he's doing in you in the moment. That's pretty good. That's an assurance of faith. Second, to those who have never truly trusted in Christ, what should it do for you? If you're wise, you won't let five more seconds go by before you do business with the Lord. Because the hurricane's not slowing down. Life keeps coming. And if you don't have the rock, the only rock, which is Christ, then you're just blowing in the wind. But God invites you to the unchanging, perfect stability that is a life found in what you were made for, what the, the apostles call the life that is truly life. Christian, don't you know the life that is truly life even in the midst of hardship? I see heads nodding. Don't you know the joy that surpasses all understanding? Yes, because you're on the rock. He's unchanging. Let me do one more. Luke chapter one, verse 50. His mercy and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I didn't even get halfway through this, guys. His mercy is for those who fear him. 
God's mercy, God's mercy is a result of God's goodness. The Puritans used to call God's mercy his darling attribute. I love that. They looked at all of his attributes and they said, God's mercy, when you go from start to finish, you just read through the Bible from start to finish, that attribute that you see just, just finding its way forth in every story, in one way or another, you see his mercy being extended to those whom he loved. Loves Thomas Watson, the great Puritan writer, he wrote this. The bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it is provoked. So God does not punish till he can bear it no longer. <laughs> what he's getting at there is that God's, God's natural bend, his attribute of who he is, is he's merciful. When Moses came down from the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, he cried out, The Lord, the Lord! A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It, he uses the word merciful, but the whole thing is mercy, 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 mercy. He's had mercy on us who haven't deserved it. All through scripture we see this. Where do we most see the mercy of God? Where is it the clearest? It's on the cross. On the cross, you see the holiness of God as the wrath of God is poured out as justice for sin. But you see the, the clarity of the mercy of God because God has Christ himself. It has God in the flesh go underneath the, the wrath of God on our behalf so that we don't get the wrath we actually deserve. That's called mercy, when you don't get the trouble you actually deserve. And now instead, when you place your faith in Christ, rather than getting wrath, because it's like oil and water, our unholiness with his holiness, God says, when I look at you in Christ, I see Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience of the law, as if it was yours. You failed. I failed. I failed in action, in thought, in affection. I'm a mess. But when God looks down at me in Christ, he sees the one who is perfectly obedient to the law covering me. And I give mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. Look carefully at her words. His mercy, here it is, is for those who fear him. Is God's mercy given to all? In one way you could say yes. We all live in a, a fallen world that, that he doesn't let collapse in on itself at any given moment. And he very graciously and mercifully brings the gospel out to the four corners of the world so that the whole world can know that there is a God, that there is a Savior, that there is a way to God's, to, to find relationship with God and to have the life that is truly life and it's in the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's God's mercy that the word is being proclaimed around the world but who is his mercy for? It's for those who fear him. It's for those who have received the free gift of grace, placed themselves in submission underneath God, and have received it as a gift and said, I follow you. That's who it's for. If you don't fear God, then there is no mercy. But it's only by fearing God, by learning the truth of God, by seeing him for who he actually is, and all fearing God means is that you stop playing games and pretending God isn't someone who he actually is. He's God. And you're going to stand before him one day. And it might be a whole lot sooner than you realize. 
And God invites you right now to to have a proper understanding of who God is and to fear him in such a way that mercy is poured out onto onto you because God is not only a person to be feared, but he is a God to be treasured because he loves you. And he's extended mercy to you. And he's wrapped you in relationship. He's promised that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's given you an inheritance that cannot be taken from you. He's given you a church family to care for you, to be with you in the hardships of life, to pick you up, to be his hands and feet in your life. How much mercy has he given us? He's been overwhelming to us. Now, how ought this impact your own walk with Lord, the Lord this Advent? If you know God's mercy... There ought to be in a Christian just a very simple delighting in God. And I'm saying it simply because I've already highlighted that a Christian ought to have a, wow! (laughs) But they also ought to have a, oh, thank you. And I think God is very pleased with that. And this Advent, I, I really want to push on us to go deeper. If you're a Christian, you know, Advent is, a, is one of those times, it's a few times a year where you get a chance to reorient and take inventory of your life and, and get a piece of paper out and a pen and, and let your soul come out on paper for a moment because we tend to go through life at such a breakneck speed that we never slow down. We never actually ask God, like, are we okay with you? And, and this is that moment. Do you have a overwhelming delight in God? Let me put it this way. Above every other delight in your life. And if the answer is no, then I invite you to look at Mary's prayer and see the delight that Mary had in God. It's a very simple delight. She's just a young girl. But she's delighted in God, isn't she? And he wants you to have that too. I don't have time for my last, my last one, but I'm gonna use it as an anecdote here. If you don't have that now, the fifth characteristic is God's omnipotence. It is entirely on God to mobilize a heart to make that happen. Some of you are in a season right now, maybe you're just feeling very dry and weary. You're feeling like, I see you preacher preaching, and I, I see the passion you have, but me right now, I've just been in a season where it, I just feel blah with God. The God we're talking about is omnipotent, and, and getting to a place from where you are now to having a passion for God and living the, God, the life that God's given you, wants for you, you can't discipline yourself to that place. It's not about you muscling up. It's not about you getting your life in order. It's not about you figuring out how to do it. That's not how it works. It's about God reaching into your heart and giving you a heart transplant and making your heart beat again. He's gotta do it. So what do you need to do? Be humble and contrite in spirit, and tremble at his word. You put yourself in a posture this Advent where you say, okay, do something new in me, God. I'm hungry for it. Change me. You watch how God's omnipotence responds to that prayer. I want to close by leading us in prayer. I'm going to invite you to stand up. And uh, our band's going to come up and lead us in two more songs of worship And if you're unfamiliar with being in a church setting, which some of you in this room might be today, when we sing songs, what this is, this this is a heart that's gotten the delighting in Christ and can't help but sing with the other saints who have figured it out as well.
Because when God changes you, you gotta say something about it. And I wanna lead us just for a few moments in quiet prayer. So I invite you to just kind of bow your head right now. And uh, I'm gonna pray, but also give you some moments of silence as the band prepares to just do some business with the Lord. Lord, your word says that you are independent. You're not dependent on us in any way. You're sovereign over all things. And God, right now I confess that very often, myself included, we all have thoughts about God that are far too small. We limit you. Confess to God ways that you've limited him in your mind. God, your word says that you are holy. In fact, it says that you are holy, holy, holy. And God, the truth is is that we are only made holy by faith in Christ, but on our own, we are unholy. Just like Adam and Eve, we've sinned. And we continue to sin. And sometimes, God, even against our better judgments, we choose sin. And so, God, the sweet news is that we have a Savior who forgives us of every sin, as if we had never sinned. But we also need to confess to you so that our sins can be forgiven. And so I invite you right now, just in a moment of quietness between you and God, what is unconfessed sin that you need the Lord to wash over with his love and mercy? Confess it to him now. He knows it all. He's not unaware of your sin. He's waiting for you to bring it to him. God, your mercy, your mercy is new every morning. Thank you, Lord. God, forgive us for taking your mercy for granted. And, uh, And God, I pray right now that you would give us such an overwhelming picture of the cross that we could not leave this room this morning without being overwhelmed at the mercy that was given us by Jesus at the cross. That we would see his hands and his feet. That we would see the thorn, the thorny crown that was pushed into his skull. that we would consider the crucifixion. That God visited us and we killed him. And it would not just be mythology, but you'd give us an image of it that's so tender and so sweet that we have to be changed by it. Do that work in us now, Lord, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we love you. We now respond doing the only thing we know how to do. We sing in Christ's name.